Today is July 2nd, 2021. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Jestokom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US Canadian US border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bogani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Chiniki Bearspaw Nations of the Stony, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Metis, Inuit, status, and non status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on their behalf. I honor the Blackfoot, and boy, I, especially after yesterday, the Blackfoot have been so gracious to me. Um, Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born here in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis and was given the name Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act Imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian, I'm a daughter of the Mayflower, a daughter of the American Revolution, while having an Indian Act Imposed status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people, in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clinchotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as the guest and acknowledging my role and your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I don't speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge in support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those that cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcast and pin posts on social media. So today's kind of a special day for me because I get to have a friend on. And uh, Esmahan, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Thanks so much, Michelle. Um, thanks for having me, first of all. And thank you for that um, land acknowledgement. Uh, it was really beautiful. So my name is Esmahan. I've been a friend of Michelle's, I think, since 2015. So that's almost six years, <laughs> which is a long time. Um, and uh, I'm really happy to be on the show. Uh, Michelle and I talked about how I should introduce myself before this. Um, and I think I, what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about my heritage, which is not something that um, I do in a really explicit way. Um, but I immigrated to Canada when I was 13 years old. I'm half Arab and half Turkish. Um, but within that, there is a lot of like mixedness happening. Um, you know, my father's side is Arab, but um, he comes from a line of people who actually moved quite a bit across Asia um, because of different kind of persecution re uh, reasons. Um, and my grandmother, my great grandmother actually has a really interesting story. Um, 
she uh, is Iraqi or was Iraqi, I should say, um, was the sole inheritor at a very young age of a, a decent amount of um, wealth, but then was married off at 13 to a much older man so that she wouldn't inherit that money. Anyway, long story short, that's kind of my dad's side, quite complicated. Um, my mother's side, uh, like I said, she's Turkish. Um, and I guess the reason I, I'm thinking about this and talking about this is because I was telling Michelle earlier, you know, um, when you first immigrate here, or at least when I first immigrated here, I, I was immigrating from a place that had quite a restrictive, um, was, was very, I should say, restrictive on women. Um, lots of, you know, human rights issues. And so when I came here, there was a lot of gratefulness associated with, you know, being Canadian, I actually became Canadian in 18 and swore an oath, um, and, which was to the queen, which was like quite interesting. Um, and, a, a, you know, quite, quite the experience. It's like this big formal thing that you celebrate. Um, and it wasn't, I should say, until, um, you know, maybe the last decade that um, I started realizing more slowly what it meant to be a settler and a non-Indigenous person and how, you know, I had to like, while I'm like very grateful to be here and um, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that were afforded to me here, I can't separate that from the fact that, you know, the there is a history in this country um, of oppression of an indigenous people and the original peoples of this land. And my being here is also a perpetuation of that, um, of that treatment. And so that's something that's like really, I think, I know Michelle, we're gonna talk about this a little bit, but I know that there are a lot of um, people in, in newcomer communities who, you know, we, we, we don't get the opportunities to learn this and, and we learn it later on. And it's one of those things that you're like, wow, like, I, but I was so grateful because I'm coming from such rough circumstances. And, and, and what does that mean? Like, and, you know, I know there are a lot of discussions about, well, am I a part of it? Am I a part of this? Or do I have to own this when, you know, maybe it happened in the past, but like, as the very upsetting news over the last few weeks, you know, learning about these, um, the, the bodies of indigenous children being found all over the country. I mean, that's not history, that's now. So it, I, we don't get to say that. So anyway, that's my, that's my introduction. Yeah, and you know, so I'm just going to be, you know, so I, I loved what you just said because it's really starting to recognize a dynamic that's not there. And, you know, just to kind of um, bring it to other folks, like as a, as a person who was, you know, born and raised here and in this like, you know, settler social media, settler education, you know, it, I mean, we're all raised to be like that, to ignore indigenous issues and to be proud Canadians so much so that, um, you know, so I'm 44 and when I was 18 was when Molson Canadian had this like huge campaign about I am Canadian. And like I have um, my first tattoo was uh, a maple leaf because I thought there's no way I could possibly regret putting a maple leaf on my my body. There's no way. <laughs> oh wow. Yep. So, but my my family, uh, my my father's settler side, like they are very anti-tattoo. So, um, like they they made fun of me actually. Even my grandma, she was like, uh, 
oh so are you you a biker now are you hanging out with like hell's angels i'm like what so i got i got like literally the tattoo that you have put a uniform on you know my my dad my grandpa that he put a uniform on your your family put a grand uh, like put uniforms on for and and i'm a biker for getting a tattoo right so it really was shocking to me um how uh stigmatized tattoos were but then as i started to learn more about indigenous issues and i understood that tattoos used to be like a way of um like our journey on this road like we would all tattoo ourselves i started to see that there was correlation there too to like um the christian belief system of you never tattoo your your sacred temple to you know and that imposed doctrine on our people to indigenous ways and eradicating that right so there was there was that so i just wanted to give you that perspective too because like as somebody who was born and raised here and given this propaganda i mean if you're not a proud canadian by the time you're 18 or 19 then obviously the education and the mass media <laughs> campaigns failed you somewhere so <laughs> you know just to just to give that uh perspective and and the other part of you know um having esmahan on here was that the impetus of this was actually her calling me to check on me to say hey how's it going and the irony being um at that point in time there was like what the fourth attack in in edmonton on somebody who was um i think she was wearing a hijab like noticeably muslim and and there's so much islamophobia happening right now um i mean everywhere but definitely here in alberta that i was like well you know you're you're, you're calling to check on me when when vice versa is true that i should be calling to check on you and seeing how you're doing as well. And um, so they, I, I thought it was so important to have you on to talk about, you know, not just what it's like for you to see these, uh, you know, these concepts that you're trying to awake to, but also folks like in my community, I have met some really like anti-Muslim, uh, you know, anti-Islamophobic folks out there that I'm like, hold up folks like the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and all of the other propaganda that we've been taught about um, Islam, like it's really done a good job on you. <laughs> you know? So, And I'm lucky enough to know you and, and a few other folks in the Muslim community to not obviously harbor that. But I mean, I've gone out of my way to do that. And a lot of you know, regular Joe Canadians are not going out of their way to meet the Muslim community, but also not going out of their way to um, learn about indigenous issues. So like there's so many intersectionalities here as well. And and it's complicated with the Indian residential schools and the proud Canadian, you know, concepts that you were referring to as well. Like there's so much to unpack. And that's why I'm so glad that you could be on my show to talk about all of this. And, you know, I. I don't want to normalize what you what you said, but I hope that you see that unfortunately it is normalized to ignore indigenous people and to be proud Canadians like that's our propaganda. Well, I um, there's so much that you said there, Michelle, that I hope that I like remember everything and can like <laughs> refer to it because there's so many interesting things that I think we can talk about. Um, but I mean, yeah, like the, you know, the context of our, of our conversation kind of started in this, like both of our communities are experiencing violence um, in different ways. And, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who, who you actually know, who's a member of Jewish community. 
And um, this was about a month ago. And, and we were just talking about how, you know, within our communities, all, all of our communities experience so much violence and hatred. And yet all of our communities also have racism and hatred inside them as well. Um, and it's, it's so sad because I feel like ultimately we are all kind of um, affected negatively by the same systems. And when one of us is impacted in one way, we, we, we might not see it, but it actually impacts other marginalized groups as well, because it makes it okay for that to happen. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know how much you're following the stuff on like critical race theory, that's happening in the in the US. And obviously the discussions that we're having now about um, the curriculum here and like, you know, actually trying to create like an anti-racist curriculum so that children can learn, um, can learn about this. Because, you know, when I was in school, I mean, um, I did actually did a couple of years of elementary school in Canada, but then, and then I lived uh, abroad and then came back. And so I like the only thing that I remember learning about indigenous peoples was like in the context of quote unquote, the discovery of Canada, you know, as though there was nobody here before, but then yes, there were here. And then they were very like, you know, it's just this like really weird kind of two chapters in your history textbook. And there's like this maybe like one section on indigenous peoples and then, you know, an odd mention here or there about like fur trades. And then, you know, you talk about like Louis Rial and stuff and, and maybe, and that's kind of like when it ends almost like, yeah. you know, and I grew up in, um, in Toronto and I actually, and this is like shocking to me now, but did not have a single indigenous classmate did not have a single indigenous teacher, did not have like an indigenous like unit or like, um, or anything like that in, in school um, at all. And then on, on the flip side of that, um, I also moved here and immigrated like right when 9-11 happened. And I remember like going to school and being like, oh my God, like what are people going to think? And then seeing like this normalization of Islamophobia where all of a sudden like every evil character in every movie was a Muslim and like, and like you just had to be so careful what you talked about. I mean, I was very anti-Iraq war. And I remember like, it was one of those things where if you, I mean, it was better in, in Canada to some degree but like you had to be so careful how you talked about it because people thought you were like sympathizing with terrorists or something like, and I, I don't know if you remember, but we went through this really long period where every Muslim had to like apologize every time there was like a terrorism attack, even though many of us fled countries because of, you know, really terrible things like that. So it, it didn't even make sense, but we were still expected to do it. So it's just looking back on those times and thinking about what was okay and how we normalized the absence of indigenous people, how we normalized um, Islamophobia, you know, like all of those things are, are tied together um, and, and we're seeing their effects now. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I'm, uh, man, 9-11, you know, and the irony is up to 9-11, there was still so much anti-Muslim propaganda, like so much of it. 
and when 9-11 happened, like I, I was uh, drafting downtown and I had a Muslim friend or a coworker, colleague, I should say, and uh, we had kids about the same time. So we've really drifted apart. But um, I remember trying to ask her about like, you know, in, in, like what's going on with this um, and, and expecting her to, you know, give me world politics 101. And, uh, and the irony, of course, today, I'm like, you want me to answer that, then you pay me <laughs> you know, <laughs> about Indigenous issues. So it's kind of funny um, that because I, I know I remember having that conversation and feeling like, how do I even talk to her about this? Like, what's going on? How do we how do we engage and, and make sure and fix this? But I was having a political conversation at work, which is also inappropriate, I think. So. Um, in the context of what it was anyway 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 so it's so easy to go off here um with uh with the attacks that are happening right now um against the muslim community um how do you do you identify as muslim i do yeah i do identify as muslim and i mean i'm not a super observant um muslim and i i have the privilege also of not being a visible muslim like i don't cover my hair um you know i wear you know sleeveless dresses and like short dresses and things like that so um but my name i think is is the big tell for me and then you know my skin color is like darker i guess although i'm i would still say like there are you know black muslims and i don't have to deal with the sort of the colorism and stuff that exists within the community and outside as well so I, i'm definitely like coming at this from a very privileged space but even so i mean um you know I, I mean i've talked to you about this michelle we both talked about our experiences both as you know candidates and just existing in this world and the kinds of things that we've had to deal with um i don't know if you remember this but like a few years ago there were all these news stories about like white supremacist groups in alberta like the three percenters and the canadian infidels and all these things and i i remember people talking about it in a very like abstract way but um it was scary and i went to stampede um and was leaving and saw a group of men wearing shirts with from one of those um one of those groups and literally feeling terror right and but also privilege because i i knew that like you know they might see me and be like oh well we can't really tell with her but if um you know i have friends who who wear the hijab or my brother um who is quite darker than than me or my dad who was like much darker than 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 me like I was just thinking like, what happens if they run into these people, right? And, um, you know, my dad and brother have both been called sand N-word in school and at work. Um, again, but both you and I have, ha you know, had very racist things said to our faces <laughs> uh, in like things that I, it's, I don't know why it still shocks me every time it happens, but it does. Um, and maybe that's naive of me still, but it, it's, it's just getting worse out there. And I think, and I'm really curious to hear about this from an indigenous perspective as well, but I just feel like racism has become, it used to be one of those things that people kind of talked about maybe within their, in, within their homes and were a bit more ashamed about, or it maybe was like less socially acceptable, but with like the Donald Trumps of the world and these, you know, far right, um, accounts and and leaders being okay seeing these things out loud 
it's just become so much more in your face. And it really feels to me like we're almost at a boiling point, you know, especially with like the anti-Muslim woman violence in Edmonton. I honestly am feeling like somebody is going to die. And I, I hate that I'm saying that out loud, but it just feels like it's building up to that point. Um, I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah. Oh, you know, this is a harder conversation because it's admitting it's admitting what Canadians are actually like. Um, being born here, so I've been in I've been in Calgary, in Fort McMurray, Sylvan Lake, back in Calgary, and now we're we're venturing to Lethbridge, and uh, that's the first time I've publicly said that, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. So and and honestly, I actually believe that there, there's like different levels of racism and the, the level of racism that you're talking about is that like you know top part where we both know like murder is around the corner for the muslim community and um because uh and just to give perspective to folks who might not know here in calgary uh there was um i can't stand the ucp so i can't even say it without wanting to spit but one of their stupid elected idiots um, their daughter was actually attacked and I don't condone that in any in any way but I did call it out because these are the folks like I don't know why she would have run for the UCP to begin with because they've shown nothing federally and provincially other than anti-islamophobic um, um, rhetoric for for years so I, I don't know why she would even run with them, but she did. And now her kid's getting attacked. And I and her kid, when I say that, was an adult and um, still attacked in Calgary. And I just called it out because it, it's like, you know, you are literally in a position of power. You folks are purposely not giving us proper Indigenous curriculum. You're purposely not giving us anti-racism education. You're literally in the position of power to change it. And now when your kid gets attacked, is this finally a conversation that that blue side can finally have? But I know that's not the case because Jason Kenney was just out condemning church burning rather than condemning the dead bodies that came from his Catholic faith. So it's really hard to talk about that. Now I know I'm so angry because I'm thinking of the UCP. I've totally forgot what the question was. I'm sorry, Asmahan. Um, but that bigger picture is that like my, my people have are have been openly targeted and murdered since as long as I can remember. So um, and the anti-Indigenous education society in general is so rampant that that's what gives people permission to kill. So like we're having um, Métis men being killed uh, by the RCMP up north, Calgary police killed some indigenous women in Calgary, right where I live. Um, you know, there's a lot of suspect when it comes to Colton Crowshoe and police. Um, you know, some white guy out in Sixica, or um, out in Gleeshin just, or Strathmore followed um a Siksika member home and killed him okay. you know like this this is my normal so when we talk about level of violence to kill muslims like yeah we're getting there for sure but that bigger picture also is is that welcome to my world you know um i'm not safe anywhere in canada we've talked about like where where is the safe place for indigenous people to go right um but I, I don't know what that answer is. So we haven't left, let's put it that way. Um, 
but that bigger picture is that it's not okay that I'm in this situation. It's not okay. Your community is being put in this situation at all. And the sad part is, is I think it's always been normalized in Canada to kill people you hate. The problem is, is that like, um, we don't see it. So like, um, I've had a friend that's on, that has been on twice now and she has a book, Natalie, um, and she, she's from Germany. And she talked about how after uh, Hitler, like all of their schooling, everything that they have has like almost anti-nationalism sentiment to it. Whereas with Canada, it's the opposite. It's like, I am Canadian is such a proud thing. Um, you'll hear people talk about how proud they are to go traveling with like a Canadian flag on their uh, patch on their backpack or something, right? Like that's so normalized here. So, um, and, and the irony being is that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be normalizing it. And that is literally what's causing the problems that we have. But folks like Kenny, I know he knows. And that's why he's like, I'm a proud Canadian, I'm a proud Catholic, masks off on July 1st. Like, like I know he knows and that's why he's doing it so that he can maintain that, um, that fascism that he's really, he loves like bill one, let's go after the natives right away federally. No one's voting for undrip, you know, like that just a matter of time until it's your community too. Like that, that saying that it's like, you know, nobody stood for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's totally indigenous experience. And then watching, you know, the Muslim community or other communities get targeted that way. It's like, Oh, you know, this is where we're at like because we we are undergoing genocide and Canada just doesn't want to admit that truth so yeah I, it's hard because I don't like what's happening to your community at all and the idea of like you or some of our other mutual friends like I just I can't even think about it the idea that you guys get to experience the level of violence indigenous people do I hate it I hate it so much so well, it's terrible and I, I think to your point I mean um if you make it okay to treat one group of people like that, then you can treat any group of people like that, right? And I mean, um, speaking from like a Muslim context, you know, the I think one of the first killings that was based on Islamophobia after 9-11 actually targeted a Sikh man because there is a lot of ignorance about, you know, <laughs> I feel like those of us who are you know, on the spectrum of brown skinned are like all the same, you know, I can't tell you how many times people are like, conflate like Arabs and, and, and Latin people and um, Iranians. And, you know, it's just like a lot of, uh, you know, um, Indians and Pakistanis, like we're all in the same group, but more broadly, all of us who are non-white are in a group together where at various times, like, I mean, in, in, in an indigenous case in a more constant systemic way, I mean, there is this like violence, right? So that, that's why I truly believe that, you know, what we see is that nobody is immune to this. You can be, you can be the daughter of a minister and still be targeted, which is so disgusting and so unfortunate. But it literally, when people have this kind of hate in their heart, they don't distinguish, you know, they, they don't say like, oh, this person is like on our side or this person is not on our side, whatever our side is. And so truly for us to get rid of this violence, it, like everybody needs to be involved. 
Um, and be, because we're all unsafe, right? Like we are all unsafe. And, um, and that means, you know, that means really addressing indigenous violence at the center. I, I think that that needs to be center to all of our discussions because the fact that it is so normalized and is, um, you know, I mean, a lot of us are, I will say like, I feel like a lot of people are learning now about the violence that indigenous people face, but you said earlier, so much of it is unsaid and so much of it is unsaid. You know, I remember having a discussion with a woman who is indigenous at um, the Women's March once. And she was, you know, telling me that one of the reasons that she was there marching is because she had been sexually assaulted. And when she went to the police, they were like, oh, well, like, they were basically implying that because she's indigenous, she was asking for it, right? And how many stories exist like that? I mean, there must be so many that we don't know of. Um, and, and that's, I think, the really dangerous thing. Like, we allow things to get to a boiling point because we dismiss so much um, and because so many people feel unsafe reporting stories. I mean, you know, when my dad was called the, um, the sand N-word at work, I, he phoned the police and they were just kind of like, okay, well, thanks for, thanks for telling us there's nothing we can do, which fair, fair enough in some respects. But on the other hand, like, you know, I couldn't help but think if that person is that angry that they're okay saying that to, to um, somebody in their workplace, what's going to set them off next time? Is it going to be violent? I mean, it's really, I feel like sometimes the onus is put on those of us who hear things like that to kind of be in charge of our own safety and just hear these things and hope that you're not in a situation that's going to escalate to violence. But like, like I don't even know if people realize that sits on that sits on you, that's like, it's a burden that you carry where you're like, how bad is this interaction going to get? How much do I have to deal with? Like, you know, um, and we talk about this in a gender context a lot where, you know, a lot of times women, when we're um, in these situations, you know, we're encouraged to like, or we're socialized to just kind of like smile and laugh it away to make our, to put ourselves in a safe situation. But I mean, these are all burdens that we carry. And then depending on your intersecting identities, some people carry those burdens in a way that is like unimaginable. Like you, if you're an indigenous woman and you know that so many of your sisters have gone missing and have been brutalized, um, I mean, that's a scary world to walk into. So. No, it is. It's upsetting. I am. Um... Yeah, that's tough, man. I don't know what to say about that kind of stuff. It's hard to um, encapsulate how how violent this world is against us. Like we can't go to a doctor, we can't go to a nurse, we can't go to a social worker, we can't go to a teacher, we can't go to the police. It's really that simple. Like there's there's not a single public servant that is an indigenous person we can go to and then to hear your dad try and, you know, if as a man, he can't get help, women are totally screwed. And then, you know, it, it, there's, I was recently invited to a stupid um, outreach for the hate bill that they're putting forward. And it's just so out of touch and out of reality. And everybody there that was at that, like the government officials, they were all white, all of them. Yeah. And I, I was invited, so I went 
and I listen to it and like the type of questions that you can ask and the, like it, it's the whole thing is framed wrong, the whole thing. And then the way the outreach is set up is that you have to ask very specific questions to the bill um, or, or how it was designed. And it, they're really not in a position to change it. It's just, in, they're just talking to us and telling us this is what's happening. And um, one of the Asians from our community here in Calgary, who was an elected official, she was like the only person who could kind of ask a question that was kind of relevant. And I'm like, as an Indigenous person, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. This is obviously not meant for anybody. Um, I honestly think it's one of the worst things to watch is like we're finally in a position of power to undo what Stephen Harper did and we're really not fixing it and it, it is what it is. This is just colonial politics 101 and um, it's designed to exclude POC. It's designed to exclude brown people, indigenous people, every black people. It's just designed that way. It's like literally a hate bill. And I'm just like, who is this for? I like, this is literally a piece of paper to make liberals feel better that they tried to undo something Harper did. And I know whoever the next conservative leader is will undo it anyway. So it's just like the most stupid, pointless, you know, uh, performative politics that you can possibly witness. And then I think of real instances like what your dad went through, what we go through every single day as indigenous people in this country. And we're not even kind of close to wanting to address any of it um, at all. Yes, and no. yeah, that TRC, we were talking a bit about, you know, you were talking actually about critical race theory and I was talking about um, anti-racism training and how that would like help everybody. And that's TRC called Action 57 is um, education, uh, anti-racism training and indigenous education for all public servants. And like, I'm, I'm a believer if we did institute real critical race theory and anti-patriotism um, that we would actually really create a stronger nation. But like you, you see the rhetoric today by the stupid blue side, both federally and provincially, like, oh, Justin Trudeau hates Canada. Like he is Captain Canada. Like he's so Canadian. I can't even, I can't even like literally, I, I can't even believe it. But the propaganda is so strong. I like as somebody I absolutely love. I tried to say uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau created the Indian residential school system. I'm, I'm like, what kind of rebel media crap do you listen to that this, you believe that, that, um, they feel confident saying it and that you feel confident enough to believe it, to perpetuate it. Like, I honestly feel like the people are so stupid right now. The only thing they know how to do is hate and hurt. And I, I just don't know how, like I, when you asked the question earlier about, you know, do you think it's getting worse? It's like, you know, it's so funny because social media is just a tool. Social media is a tool for me to speak you know, this podcast is, is like an outcome of that. And yet you have these, you know, incredible organizations, like uh, you were talking about the hate organizations and that's kind of that propaganda machine that's out there. I mean, so many people use that tool for, for negative, for, for bad. And I, it's just like, okay, like, and then they have the audacity to say that anyone doesn't, who doesn't agree with it is anti-Canadian. So, 
like I, I'm trying to understand how you know media has been such a misused tool that here we are the people are questioning whether the earth earth is round whether there was dinosaurs and whether racism is a thing like it's incredible to me we literally have the indian act embedded in the canadian constitution and people still are like i don't think there's racism in canada so i don't even know how, how you take the average person who thinks these thoughts and like deprogram them into good citizens <laughs> i mean i remember i uh seeing a federal political leader i think it was aaron o'toole uh say that systemic racism doesn't exist um a few months ago when we were having this sort of discussions around black lives matter and i mean to your point i mean you know the indian act exists and um i i, I mean they're like they're just the children in care. I mean, that's like one of the biggest examples of systemic racism, right? Like, how do you, and you said earlier, you know, and I think that that's something that people should really think about, like, because a lot of our communities um, don't have the same experience where a social worker, a teacher, like, in many ways, those professions were weaponized against Indigenous people to like rip families apart, right? And, uh, and, and that's a really difficult legacy that it's not even a legacy because it's kind of ongoing like that we all have to recognize and um and move towards and i think you're right like i mean implementing the trc calls to action like i think we've only fully implemented 12. um i think 12 12 is a number like partially implemented like around 60 and i think 20 plus we haven't even touched and I mean, what is that like over half a decade now that those calls to action have been have been out and I do worry too that like, you know, um, our communities go through this trauma of like being in the news because of terrible things, but then the minute we're not the headline people forget and don't push for action and I really hope that that's not the case particularly in response to, um, you know, the, the bodies that have been, been found. Like, I hope that we really push, um, push for the calls to action to be implemented. But I will say like, you know, I lived in Vancouver for almost a year and a half um, and moved back to Calgary last November. And it was really interesting because um, there was a discussion around like the coastal gas uh, pipeline issue and um, there was a split within the indigenous community about whether the pipeline would be a good thing, right? Like there were different perspectives and, and that's normal. Like no community is a monolith. You know, everybody thinks like, oh, all Muslims think this or all women think this, that's, that's never the case. But what I thought was really disturbing was the way that um, those perspectives were being like exploited by you know, both sides of the issue who were like, well, let's support this indigenous side and let's, or let's support this indigenous side. And I'm like, maybe step back and allow indigenous people to have a conversation internally about this, right? Like why it's, I don't know, we're just in a really uncomfortable space. I think, I, I am hopeful that I, I think that people, there is, um, a desire to do better, but I don't know if that desire to do better 
will persist when people realize that it's going to make them uncomfortable and um, cause them to think about things in a way that maybe they've never thought of before. And none of us like change and none of us like to be made uncomfortable. But if we don't allow that to happen, then we're just kind of like papering over things. I mean, you talked about this, this um, hate bill that you were invited to a consultation for. Um, you know, I saw some news earlier um, about uh, money being given to um, to places of worship to help beef, beef up security, which in, it's good. And it's good. I'm glad that's happening. But at the same time, so many attacks against Muslims, for example, are happening outside of faith based places like they're happening on the street. You know, the murder in London happened. The murders, I should say, in London happened on the street. Like it's literally not safe in some places to be a Muslim out there walking. It's not safe to be, you know, um, like, I mean, you can speak more about the indigenous perspective and you said so eloquently, like, is there a place that indigenous people can feel safe? You know, is there a place that black men feel safe? Is there a place that black women feel safe? Like those are real questions and this kind of like piecemeal, like let's give some funding here and make this place a little bit better. But that's not the issue. The issue is the, is the perspectives that are exist in our society that allow people to go and be violent based on racism, right? And I always feel like the onus is on um, marginalized groups and racialized groups to like protect us and to solve racism and to solve, you know, to, to solve reconciliation and make everything great. But it's like, it's not really our responsibility here, you know? Well, you know, it's the concept of systemic racism means systemic changes by the people who benefit. And that that's the problem. Like, so for example, that conversation that you were talking about when it comes to the split in the pipelines, what I, I, I love the fact that everybody wants to exploit that conversation rather than the systemic racism that causes that. And the systemic racism is that because there's not dollar to dollar um, funding for Indigenous people compared to non-Indigenous, then of course we are underserved and under, like we are in poverty. So we have systemic racism imposed poverty and nobody wants to address that part, which might be why somebody would want a pipeline if that means that they could put food on the table for five minutes because systemic poverty that's been imposed by Canada from the Indian Act has never allowed wealth. And that is the problem. I mean, that's the problem we should be talking about, not whether or not we should build a damn pipeline, but I know what you mean about it being exploited on both sides, because I'm like one of the people that hates the environment movement the most because they silence Indigenous voices. And the irony being, if they legitimately cared about environmentalism, they would center Indigenous voices because we've been maintaining this place literally was the Garden of Eden that of, um, you know, the, the Christians talk about. And then they came here and wrecked it, <laughs> like literally came here and wrecked it. And then because of capitalism and greed. And that's the irony is that their religion and their so-called belief systems is like, you know, anti-greed and anti-sin. And it's like, but every single awful sin that you could possibly imagine was actually done to indigenous people in order for them to create the system that they could exploit to ruin the garden of eden right like it's just it's so incredible and then you know again you know address the systemic racism that would address this issue of the pipeline but we're talking about people who are still fighting us on on drip 
let alone giving us rights for anything else. And the irony is we've always come to the table with solutions. The treaty was made with the idea of equality. And because settlers have always been selfish and sinful, they take all of the money and all of the wealth and you know ruin the land. So like even their environmentalism is selfish and centered on them and not focused on indigenous people who actually know the land and how to fix the land. So it, there's so many levels of we are in such a messed up conversation that we can't even trust the so-called you know progressives or the leftists or whatever. Um, vegans, they basically have ruined life for Inuit um, with their anti-meat campaign rather than recognizing you know an entire way of life for people who live and eat with seals. You know, they exploited that conversation and, and became anti-Indigenous. Um, yeah, so there's so many levels of how messed up all of this is, once again, all centered on systemic racism that nobody wants to talk about. For sure. And I mean, I mean, your broader point, too, about um, it, people don't realize what the cost of food is like up north, right? Um, and so think it's okay to prevent hunting um, which like actually feeds people who maybe can't afford $60 to buy chicken. Um, or, I mean, people should really look up prices of food up North. Like they are wild and, um, not many people could afford that. So, I mean, systemic racism is the issue. I think it is so embedded in our lives that I, even those of us who, um, and, and I, there are ways that I benefit from systemic racism and I, I will just acknowledge that. Um, but, but there are ways that I don't benefit or, or that I'm like harmed by it as well. And like, um, we don't even know all the things, right? I mean, there's so many studies that are coming out now and I actually haven't seen this in an indigenous context, but I'd be curious if you know this, Michelle, but I know like, um, there's so many studies about black women's health, for example. And like, you know, the shorter lifespans and the death um, death rate compared to white women in hospitals for pregnancies and stuff. And a lot of that people are realizing is like the stress of dealing with racism all your life shortens your lifespan and gives you diseases. It's literally, racism is literally a public health issue. Like, like literally, and I, I'm using the word literally correctly here it shortens people's lifespans. It gives them diseases. It affects their quality of life in ways that we haven't even accounted for or understand. And until we, um, until we solve it, we're going to be seeing these systemic inequities, you know? Um, and there are so many types of like um, solutions, quote unquote, to racism or, or to feminism, for example, that like, you know, it empowers a few people. And we're like, oh, you know, for example, in the US, like Barack Obama is now president. And so like racism is solved or like here, you know, um, we had the first uh, indigenous woman as like uh, the attorney general um, or, or things like this. And it's like, well, now it's like all solved, right? Like we can see like, there's some indigenous people on boards. There's some black people on boards. There's some Muslims and uh, on boards, but like, that's not, that's not it. That's not it. What, what about, the members of those communities who are in the most vulnerable position, who are working those frontline jobs, you know, or um, who are living in, in poverty, 
like those are the real measures of whether or not we're addressing racism or uh, gender inequities or anything like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, this is why we have so many similar political belief systems. <laughs> it's yeah. uh yeah. Any, did you want to talk about running by the way? Uh, what, what that was like for you? And I yeah. only ask because, uh, I want to see some progressive, um, school trustees and uh, counselors running for municipal politics in Alberta for the October election, but you know, we're really sadly lacking on progressive uh, school trustees, that's for sure. And I really want people to get more involved in the school trustee space because this curriculum thing has me really upset. I don't, I don't have children. Um, I don't have children, but I have a lot of friends who have young children. And when they saw the curriculum, that was the first time that people I know were like, I don't know if I can live in this province and raise my children anymore. Yep. And I totally get it. Like it's, you know, there's so many things that are um, upsetting about it. So we really need people on the school trustee boards who are strong proponents of public education and of, um, you know, addressing like inequities within within education. So I'm really, really hopeful about that. Um, you know, Michelle, did you do you regret running? No, I don't regret it at all. Because um, part of it is, you know how um, you come to the table with solutions. And you just tell people like, these are the solutions. And then they're like, Oh, my God, you should run. And then you run. And then it's like, see, Indigenous women aren't electable, <laughs> you know, like that's the whole concept is that just because you come to the table with solutions doesn't mean that's what people want. They really want the white cis man who kisses babies to be the elected leader for no reason out of anything other than default. Yeah, I don't regret running either. People ask me that all the time, like, you know, you lost and like, do you regret it? And it's like, well, you actually learn so much. And being someone who runs for office, it's a really eye-opening experience when it comes to community. Because if you care about community, you get to have conversations with communities and you get to really do that grassroots work of like building, um, you know, building solutions that really have that community perspective. You, you probably know this, Michelle, but like, I'm such a fan of like AOC, for example. And I saw this really cool thing she did the other day where um, she used her volunteers during the pandemic to tutor underprivileged kids so that they would go like do better in like um, reading and math and stuff at school. And I mean, that's what politics can be, right? Like it can be about like making your communities better, not just through your elected, um, not just through like voting on things, but through like really being there in your community and being there to support them. And I really felt like I got to do that while I ran but I don't want to paint a rosy picture of it either. Like if you are um, a woman, if you are a person of color, um, you know, you're going to get a lot of, and, and I wonder if it's even worse this time around because um, of just like the acceptableness of, of some of the things that can be said now, but people have to unfortunately um, deal with that. And, and do you remember when we were running Michelle and like, this really stuck with me because um, there was that video of Nenshi at a mosque where he was talking about the racism he was experiencing and then it went viral and then everybody was like, oh my God, Nenshi's playing the race card. And I was just like, 
if people think that Nenshi, who is this like, you know, at the time two-term mayor, beloved by Calgarians is playing the race card. What are they gonna think if I talk about racism? They're definitely gonna think I'm playing the race card. They're not gonna think it's like real because people don't wanna face up to that. Yeah, um, no. That's like a daily like thing I get every single day. Like if I uh, comment on like the national post or something, it's like, oh, look, he's playing the race card. And it's like, really? yeah, look, he's an ignorant asshole. It doesn't deserve my time and space, block. <laughs> playing the race card, that's such a like, it's such an offensive term in and of itself, right? Well, it's an ignorant, it's like, like there's ignorant and then there's ignorant, like literally he's, whoever wrote that is such an idiot that they actually, and I, I don't mean to be um, able-bodied in that. I just mean that like literally they are decidedly so ignorant, decidedly to not know about racism. And, um, and then to have the confidence just shows that ignorance again and that lack of understanding. And it, I, I deal with that all the time with people who are like, you know, want to downplay what the Indian Act actually is as race-based legislation. And it's like, how do you like exist feeling confident and telling your friends and your family that like you are that ignorant that you're willing to say that's not racist? Like, like, I, like I, honestly, it's like saying the sky is green and then just being so angry about it not being green. And it's like, okay, well, like, how do we even have this discussion? Like, you can't. They're just committed to be ignorant. They're so committed to it. You can't even try. And it's like, these are the people who are voting in our elected officials. So I, I don't even know, like, how we're going to fix this when you have a populate, population that's so, like, daft. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, like, more optimistic, I think. Like, I really think that, like, there are a lot of people who believe that this stuff is wrong but I don't know if they, I don't know. I, I think part of it is a lack of like, part of it is a failure of like the systems that we have in place, right? Where because so much of our media is white, when we talk about race related issues often, you know, it's like white people having this conversation about people of color as though like we are like an, you know, an intellectual topic of debate or something, um, which is like not okay. And we need to have like representation in those, in those conversations. Um, and I think that if we do have some of that representation and then we'll have some of those like harder conversations that people can, can really listen to, you know, um, Angela Starrett is a woman I follow out in, um, in bank. I think she's in Vancouver and like she, as a CBC journalist, and it really challenges people to think um, in a in a very like uncomfortable way. Um, but it's the kind of like discomfort that you have to sit with and think about and, and really listen to those opinions. And um, like I, I just hope we we see more and more of these voices platformed and given the opportunity to share their stories. Because I I remember reading, and both you and I are political, Michelle that like the way that people changed their minds about same-sex marriage in the U.S. was by learning the stories. First of all, learning that so many people around them were um, members of the LGBTQ plus community um, and seeing the impact on them. But for so many people, like I told you my experience growing up in Toronto, literally never encountered an Indigenous person. Like that is I wonder how many people like that exist, right? And didn't, didn't have the opportunity like I did then to um, 
you know, move around the country and like actually meet like real life indigenous people and like hear their stories from their mouths. Um, we need to hear those things because I think once people understand what is going on and that this isn't just something that's in our textbook, then I really think that they will want to do more, but we have to build up to that. And we need leaders who have political courage. I mean, so much of it is that so many of the leaders we have just don't have that political courage. They're not willing to lose an election to do the right thing, Yeah, which is not okay. Yeah, yeah I know. And how Jody Wilson Rainbow made through that, I have no idea. I, I actually, I didn't have faith in people to vote her back in. And now that we're probably going into another fall election, you know, um, will they re, will they vote her in again? Because I think nationally, there's an appetite for her to be so strong. And, uh, you know, be, especially during that SNL Lavalin thing, but that bigger picture that, um, you know, I just didn't have faith that people would vote her in. But then I knew an Indigenous guy who who purposely moved into her riding so that he could vote for her. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was like, you know, and, and it's beginning to be like that, where it's like, if you have that uh, option to be like, okay, who do I really love? And it's like, I kept saying to my husband, can you get a job in Edmonton so we can move into Janice Irwin's like riding? That would be really great. I, like I just needed somebody progressive in my life who representing me. <laughs> and this is awesome. Yeah, I know, right? I just wouldn't it be great to like if if uh, Amarjeet Sohi wins to be like. Remember when when um, Rachel won? And then she was our mayor. She was our premier. Justin Trudeau was our um, our prime minister, and it was like such a like you know middle finger to the blue side. And if Amarjeet Sohi becomes mayor, it'll be like really close to that similar belief system if you lived in like a Janice Irwin type riding, um, our guest constituency provincially. Um, it would be so great to to live in that again. So I don't know, but I, eh, 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 one has to dream. <laughs> well, you know what, and, and who knows, I mean, like, um, first of all, I, I think Amarjeet's doing pretty well in his mayoral race in Edmonton. Um, a little jealous of Edmontonians um, because I think he's going to be such a great mayor if he's elected. Yep. Um, such a great guy. Yep. But, you know, I mean, I do think that like, you know, in the last election, the last provincial election, um, you know, like I was I was helping the NDP. And I remember when there were all these things that were coming out about some of the candidates that were running for the UCP, um, it just didn't matter, right? Like there these nope. like all these like racist things um, were being said and there were homophobic things and it really didn't matter. Um, and I hope it matters this time. Like I hope that, you know, people recognize that those kinds of views, I mean, I truly believe that like ultimately like the biggest quality I want in a politician is compassion. You know, I want someone who cares about everybody, regardless of their educational background, skin color, you know, um, profession, like they should care about everybody. And like part of the reason that I think we did so poorly this pandemic was because, you know, I, our government, I don't think that we saw the, I would have liked to see more compassion from our government. I will say that, you know, there was, there were 
um, people who were frontline workers who were still having to work and don't have like access to like so many things that I think would have made their experiences more safe. Um, just so much. And I, I really hope that when we, you know, um, when we think about what we all went through this pandemic um, and we think about what kind of governments we want, we think about elected officials who have the compassion to care about people's, to care about people's lives and center that. Oh, you're speaking to my soul. I wish, I wish that was the thing. I think it's just really important that you kind of brought up the point that, you know, we we didn't see the compassion from our leaders that we needed. And of course, that contributed to vaccine hesitancy. Um, you know, I, I felt we were really lucky in the Indigenous community. Uh, Dr. James McCocus, who won the amazing race, and we have like Dr. Esther Tailfeathers, all these amazing doctors in Alberta who are Indigenous. They worked really hard nationally. There were other Indigenous doctors um, that worked really hard to make sure that we were first in line because we're already undergoing a, a genocide. So, you know, the last thing we need is like another disease to, um, you know, disproportionately affect us. Yeah. So we were really lucky to have advocates like that from the beginning to tr really encourage Indigenous people to get their shots. Um, I got my second shot immediately right away. I was like first in line um, at both shots. So Good. I did. Yeah. But my daughter, she still has to get her second one. Like, you know, when I signed myself up through an Indigenous program and um, I didn't with my daughter and I so regret it because the, you know, practicing nurse was racist. There's just no nice way to say it you know, really hesitating between uh, vaccinating my daughter. And it was such a racist trope that I'm, I'm used to, where it was oh, like, no. if you don't, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and, and uh, so anyway, she got her first vaccine, but I have to find an Indigenous um, program to try to get her her second one, because just calling 811 is not going to work for Indigenous people. And it didn't work for us. And I wish I wouldn't have done it in retrospect. Again, every interaction I have with Alberta Health ends up like that. So it's just awful. Anyway, so I got to get her her second one. And my husband, you know, really lucky he can basically get his second anytime he wants to. But like most people just kind of hesitating because um, he can, you know, because he has that privilege. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can, uh, you can kind of drive him up to the, you know, just like we're, we're going for dinner and then just shove him into a vaccine clinic. Yeah. Well, he apparently made um, uh, an appointment. So at least that's progress, um, you know, but I don't know when it is. So I can't make sure we're successful in getting him there. <laughs> it's like you get out the vote, Michelle. Like right? you gotta get everybody. Yeah, totally. Everything comes back to politics. It really does. I tell people, even the paint on the wall is political anyway. <laughs> you know, I could go on all day and I really appreciate you coming on my show. And I want you to know, one, you're welcome back anytime. And two, we need to continue this conversation because we can go in so many different directions. And I know that there is a, like you were talking a bit about Angela and, you know, Indigenous perspective, like there is, because media is so racist and so white supremacist my podcast is really successful, literally because it's centered around in today's episode, 
to women of color in Canada, you know, and, and there is a need for it because otherwise people wouldn't be downloading my podcast, which surprises me by the way, every day that I have a single listener, let alone multiple. So congratulations. And I mean, I think voices like yours and Angela's like, they're so important. And, um, I will give a plug also to the article that you told me to read, Michelle, um, by uh, Fatima Syed in, you know, Chatelaine, where she talked about being um, a Muslim and like couple um, dealing with, I guess, or coming to terms with how we should feel about Indigenous issues. And it's a really powerful, good article that if people are not, um, you know, if people who are Muslim who are listening to this, I, I highly suggest you read it because it's just beautiful to see how, I don't know, like they're, you know, how we can support each other as communities. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that, and ultimately like, that's just it. Like we are united in fighting racism and white supremacy. So the sooner that we can all get on board and help each other, the better. And so it, obviously in my community, making sure that we kind of debunk any of this anti-Muslim belief system. By the way, I was kind of giggling when you were talking about the Sikhs getting attacked for two reasons, because it just amplifies how incredibly ignorant the average Joe Canadian is. But two, the irony being the whole purpose of the turban is to be like, if you're in trouble, look around and find a turban to help you. And the irony is, of course, we use it as a weapon against the community because we're idiots. It's so sad. I mean, it's just like, I feel like we can't even end this without talking about Bill 21 in Quebec and like how, I mean, that is systemic racism and that is legislated racism, right? Like um, people who wear turbans or people who wear hijabs or, um, you know, people of the Jewish faith who wear, I think it's called the kippah at the back of, um, you know, on their heads, like you, you, what, you can't be a lawyer, you can't be a teacher, because you want to practice your faith, like, that's not okay, right? So yeah, I mean, I I know that um, people across Canada are upset about that. But like, we need to get that law repealed. Well, I'm literally talking to you about TRC 57. Like, that's literally anti TR 57. Yeah. Like, how can we even talk about anti racism training for public servants? when our public, our elected public servants are like instituting racist legislation. Like I can't even wrap my head around how in the wrong direction it is. Like it's just completely 180 from each other. So I'm hundred percent with you that it needs to be repealed. I just can't believe we're even in this situation and we're having this conversation. I can't even believe it. No, I mean, either. I mean, I can't believe that, you know this has been in place. I feel like it's been almost a year, maybe more. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and there are, there's an entire province where this is okay. And that's, it's so sad. Like, it's really sad. It's so gross. It's just, it makes me sick to my stomach. It really does. So anyway, I really appreciate you being on my show. I'm going to do this um, ridiculous exit of uh, resources for all of our listeners. And um, I just really encourage you to uh, chime in at any point in time. Um, and I wanted to make a quick point too that Esmahan talked about how, um, you know, white passing she is except for her name. And when I started off my podcast, I go out of my way to say as a 
Michelle Robinson or as a Michelle Elliott in an English colonial world, how that has afforded me privilege. And this is such a great example to point that out because your name is Asmahan, that people are like, you know, sorry, say that again. Can you say that one more time? Okay, so Asmahan, okay, okay. You know, and, and that's, that is the point of having a name like Michelle Elliott, Michelle Robinson, uh, getting a job, getting a loan, getting a, anything, right? So I just wanted to point that out too. Um, I'm really proud that this podcast has given solutions and included uh, cultural safety training or cultural first aid in almost every one of them to create a safer place for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities, and LGBTQ2 to speak. I want to say thank you to authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fridkin of heretohelp.bc.ca of Indigenous people, what is cultural safety and why I should care about it. Their work on those cultural action tools, I've said hundreds of times in my podcast, so please support Indigenous work as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat it here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence that marginalized folks are experiencing under the structure of racism. Um, RacialEquityTools.org, what is internalized racism by Donna Bevins is a good resource. Do's and Don'ts for Bystander Intervention by American Friends and Family. Um, so they have a whole link about that that I've spoken about. If you see or experience racism in Alberta, report it to Act to End Racism and text at eight five or sorry five eight seven five zero six thirty eight thirty eight. This is why I need my glasses. Indigenous people have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their platforms and policies. If they don't understand marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts mar marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, the violence prevention programs, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational justice and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. A really great article I said out loud is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. Um, if you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about today and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 855-242-3310. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they also have a text option at hopeforwellness.ca. If related, for, related to more missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. And for non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area. You sometimes functioning two one ones, 
And there's a toll-free line that you can get here in Canada, 833-456-4566. Uh, 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta is SSISA.ca. And you can also look up hashtag survivor driven. So, and again, if you experience racism here in Alberta and act to end racism at 587-506-3838. I also wanna give a shout out to the Trevor Project. They have tons of different supports for LGBTQ2+. They have a youth line, a peer support line, kids help phone at 1-800. 668-6868. And you can also go to lifevoices.ca for more LGBTQ2 plus supports. Uh, violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone policing, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinions, but sure want to tell theirs, usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous colonialism, the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights, microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, who become gatekeepers and live off the status quo, or other people who are so in their trauma, they stop people from doing the work and deplete personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That is why I started this podcast because white stream or white supremacist mainstream media is not an alternative for me. I wanna say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, and what strength looks like through your example. I wanna thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots, and stepping up and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her, I am a second generation proud Calgarian. Uh, thank you to my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, he's the father of our child, and my support during down my journey of the Red Road, he's witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, who we are blessed to learn from daily, we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a stronger and better person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcast and pin posts on social media. And I want to end by giving side-eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish, and my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. <laughs> Thanks for listening.